Hello lovely patrons and welcome to another one of our prestigious pints episodes. And I'm sure you're going to recognise these two that we've got on for this next one, which is Mary and Tom Poppendick. And we managed to track them down and invite them to one of our virtual uh, pubs and they were more than happy to join us. As you can imagine, we talked a lot about lean and the manufacturing uh, process, but also how this pandemic has really focused employees on purpose and feedback, getting customer feedback to innovate in these in these times. We also talk quite a lot about motivating and engineering and what defines an engineer within software and whether that's the same as civil engineering and other types of disciplines. So Mary and Tom have got first got to know me and Jeff back in BT, so we reminisced also about some of those, those days years back. Uh, but they've been an ever-present in the Agile and Lean space ever since. It was really good to have a catch-up with them. We hope you enjoy the episode. Um, let's play the jingle. Here we go. Cheers, everyone. Welcome, everybody. Um, as part of our prestigious pint series that we're calling it, Paul and I are hooking up with some uh, some of our agile heroes for a quick drink and a chat, as socially distanced as you can get between the UK and um, Minnesota in in America. We've got Mary and Tom Poppendick with us today. Hey, Mary and Tom. Hey. Hello. Hi, Mary. Hi, Tom. Good to see you. Last time I saw you, Mary, was in Dublin, I think. Okay. At the what, two, three Island. years ago, maybe? Not that long ago. May well have been. No, 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 because no, because Grayson had just been born. My youngest had been just over two years ago. Yeah, two, two years. Yeah, ago. yeah. As I said, two years, three, something okay, like yeah. that. Yeah, that was one of the more recent places that we've been, and uh, I don't actually remember meeting you there, but there were a lot of people. <laughs> that's, that's quite understandable. What okay. event was that, Jeff? What, what was going on then? That was. Um, Ali, as, as they call the, the conference. Oh, yes, yes. So we, we were both speaking, um, both speaking at that conference. Yeah, um, yeah it was probably the last actual face-to-face conference that I went to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so how are things with you two? Well, just fine. We have been here for a year, uh, enjoying learning how to cook and maybe a few pots and wine and <laughs> um, haven't traveled. Haven't even shopped in stores or gotten haircuts or anything like that. But um, uh, it's a quite a quite an interesting change of pace. I can imagine because you you've had travel has been massive. For oh you. yeah, and I had last summer and fall we had a full schedule starting in August until the end of October, and it capped off by being in London on the and say you know the last second last week of October, and then we we're going to fly home. Well, none of that happened, but there you go. <laughs> and you haven't even been able to get out on your bikes, I presume. Um, well, we don't bike ride, but we've been out walking a lot, virtually every day, unless the temperature is in the single digits Fahrenheit, which was 10 days this winter. Other than that, we walk for about two kilometers a day. Okay. And just, have you managed to, we were talking about this a while ago, we've been doing a lot more walking than we ever did. And yeah. finding out bits of our local area that we never knew existed. Just exactly. <laughs> yep. I can yeah. remember watching all the flowers come up last spring, and now they're starting to do it again. 
That was going to be my question for you, Mary, Mary Anton. Is there anything good? I know we've talked we, we've talked a lot about the bad things that have come out of this pandemic, but has anything good out of this come out of this for you? I think a lot of illusions that people have have been dissipated. The um, illusion that presence was central to getting things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the ability to um, influence what matters required constant in-person oversight. Yeah. And that's pretty well um, not viable anymore. Yeah, yeah. I've also been extraordinarily impressed at, especially right in the first, say, two months of the pandemic, how fast everybody pivoted to online um, you didn't ask questions. You didn't form teams. You you just took a group of people and threw them at a problem and said, "When people can drive up and pick up their groceries in the back of their car, let us you know we'll put it online." And it took two weeks or something like that. Hmm. Um, our our uh, granddaughter started first grade in the elementary school in the fall, and um, she really enjoys her class and her teacher. Uh, yes, she isn't able to interact the same, but she does quite a bit of playing with close friends online where they play games together and stuff. And she teaches her dad how to use Zoom and she's like seven. She can teach us a few things, I expect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she was six and she became a Zoom expert because that's last spring when she started going to school by you know, finishing up kindergarten in Zoom. And then she started full full-scale, full-day school by Zoom. Mm -hmm. And uh, she'll be there throughout this year and then go to regular school next fall. Even her three-year-old brother is fairly skilled at Zoom. Oh, yeah. You know, we saw them the last week of February, the little ones. And uh, he was two and a half at the time. And he was riding a balance bike before he was three, Zooming around the neighborhood on their daily bike ride, they did bike ride. And um, uh, very fast, I can remember teaching him how to use a screen Mm -hmm. on his tablet because he had to understand that what he saw is what we saw. And if you want to teach a two-year-old how to aim a screen, that's actually quite a sophisticated (laughs) talent. And so we had to explain to him a few times that that if he could look at what he could see on the screen, that's what we could see. And all of a sudden, bingo, he figured it out. He was probably just over three when that happened. And now if he accidentally bumps the screen off, he knows where the right button is, turn it back on again. And uh, he chases around the house with and takes us up to his bedroom and closes the door so his sister doesn't have to be involved in the talk. (laughs) (laughs) You find it easier to teach three-year-olds than you do to teach senior managers. (laughs) Yes. I was teaching my granddaughter yesterday how to measure grams into her bread machine. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we got to the salt and she had, it was supposed to be seven grams and she put in nine and I said, no, no, take those extra two out. You don't want extra salt. Then she put in butter and it was supposed to be 35 grams and she put in 37 and she started going to take two grams of butter out. No, 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 don't worry about two grams of I, What I didn't explain was why it mattered with the salt, but it didn't matter with the butter. 
but she was definitely measuring in grams because they they find that a whole lot easier than to use any kind of measuring cup or anything like that. Yeah. And I like the grams because then I can I can use milliliters and tell her how much liquid. I think that's a instance of um, an answer to your earlier question, Paul, of um, what good has happened. And I think it's helped us understand what really matters. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, while two grams of salt may matter, two grams of butter don't. And um, that's as true of a lot of stuff in our daily lives. Um, doing what you're told doesn't really matter. Um, figuring out how to solve a meaningful, important problem does. Figuring out what the problem is, is what really matters. Not um, arbitrary measures of productivity or any of the rest of that. Yeah. And I think you're right, Tom. I think it's those companies, certainly during this pandemic that Jeff and I have both talked about before, is that companies that have really grasped this, that they've pivoted, like you said, Mary, that they've they've just seen this, okay, we have to act, we have to do something, and let's let's not try and overanalyze this. Let's let's see let's try a few things out and see what sticks and see what happens and and let people get on with it. Let clever people get on with it. I think you're absolutely right. And they also threw together whole complete teams at whole complete problems and said, you know, when people are driving up and picking up their groceries, your team is going to know it's done well. <laughs> Here's some feedback where you can get from people. And, and that could not have been a software team. Yeah, they needed to upgrade their website, but they also needed to have the inventory match between the store and the website. They needed to have people hired in order to handle the stuff they needed all kinds of logistics changes in order to do this. And yet virtually every retail outlet around me was doing what we call curbside pickup in approximately three weeks. Really? And, and some of them took five and that's it. Yeah. And, and, um, and you know that they didn't plan it and you know that they did it kind of on hope. And there were lots of different schemes, um, all of which worked sort of. Uh, and it wasn't even one worked better than the other. Maybe the app would tell them when you're coming, but the first app were come, pull up to the sign, the phone number's on the sign, call inside. Mm. <laughs> and um, and all of the various things happened really fast. We did a talk at University of Wisconsin. It was a remote talk. And the CIO got up in the beginning. It was maybe a month, six weeks into the pandemic. And she did a laundry list of what all of the folks involved in IT and software had to do to get everybody in the university at home and learning inside of three days. Hmm. And I mean, just think about it. But they were the ones that were behind the scenes actually doing everything. There were professors who had never taught online before. There were um, students without internet access. And, it was just one problem after another, and they would just jump on them, one problem after another, mm -hmm. until, uh, yes, they actually moved everybody online and more or less working inside of three days. But that's not just that university. That's every university, every high school, every elementary school, pretty much everywhere mm -hmm. did the same thing. Yeah, it's amazing. Necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it, they say? And I think that's you know, when you get faced with something that big that challenging the good so what lessons we should have learned is that we can do stuff really well and really rapidly when we take a problem 
put together the right kind of a team, throw them at the problem. They can tell when they're making progress. They can tell when it's working well. They don't need a whole lot of anything except here's the people you're trying to serve. Here's, you know, figure out when they're happy, uh, come up with creative ideas to make it work and just go. But those are not tech teams. Those are whole teams. Mm. And I think that um, you didn't actually see tech teams go after emergency problems. No. 25 years ago, that would have taken three to five years. Yeah. Three to five weeks. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's a similar thing with the vaccines, isn't it? What's the, 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 the numbers get thrown around is that what would have taken 10 years got done in 10 months. Yeah. When, when, when the right, and when, you know, you, you disregard kind of global politics and when there is that kind of ch global challenge, putting the right people, giving them the right amount of money, giving them the right problem, it's amazing what can be resolved and can be worked on Yeah. when everything else just gets out of the way, when all those other impediments are just removed. Will this learning stick, though? Will we as humanity actually keep the lessons we've learned? From well, this? there will be a bunch of people who will not forget. And they'll start up new companies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Will it stick in the existing corporations and governments? Who knows? Only the survivors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you, seen another, have you seen another shift or another change as big as this in your career? I would say, um, I think the arrival of the internet, mm -hmm. uh, the arrival of the iPhone. Yeah. I mean, we went in 2005 to 2010 from no cloud, no, no mobile to pretty much locked in cloud and mobile. Yeah. Now, yes, it took five years, but boy, was that a dramatic change yeah. in technology and in the way that people used it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, and did that, how did that affect your work, that, that kind of change? Well, we had been traveling and giving talks in Europe before then, but it was infinitely easier after we could bring a mobile phone. <laughs> and, and, you know, and not worry about where our and have access to stuff in the cloud just infinitely easier yeah. and you know the fact that there is a google where you can sit down and search is such a dramatic change from the late 1990s when you couldn't yeah and you had to buy books and you had to go to the library and you were very limited in what you could figure out um but google was there when i wrote my first book and just barely yeah and i could do amazing amounts of you know first source research just by going to google and asking questions just amazing amount of information that had never ever been easy to get before it's just look the the fact that everything's right there and you can find the answers is um was a really big change as long as we're disciplined enough to actually fact check the answers that we find, right? <laughs> well, uh, I was writing the first book and I wanted every single thing to be, every single source I used to be first source. Absolutely. Not somebody says, but if somebody says and I liked it, I would go back <laughs> sometimes two or three layers to get to the first source to see what was really said. Mm. And I could not have done that five years earlier. It would not have been a concept. No. 
I think the impact of that is important and a deeper one. Throughout most of our education, it's been about answers. Mm-hmm. You go to school to learn answers. Yeah. Today, with the internet, with search, answers are cheap. <laughs> it's the questions that are hard. And learning to ask good questions is really the essence that um, computers haven't made any easier. Mm. Um, artificial intelligence doesn't do it. Yeah. Um, you still have to question the bias that's built into the training data sets mm-hmm. that seems to be unavoidable. Um, so answering the, asking the right questions is the key thing. And there are lots and lots of people getting answers to any problem today is pretty easy as soon as you really, really understand the problem, as soon as you really have the questions that need answers. Um, and that's, I think, become much more obvious in the last 20, 30 years than it was before that. I think also that gives, and Jeff, we've spoken about this uh, on a previous podcast not long back, but I think because there are the the richness of that information, the internet and because you can, the phrase to Google anything, you can Google anything, but I think we've got a bit impatient. If we're given a tough question, we almost expect, well, there must be an answer to this because there are so many answers. There must be an answer. Somebody must have answered this difficult question already. Do you, do you get that a lot in your work? People expecting you, somebody, somebody must know. I think there are two kinds of questions. One to which the answer to that is obvious. If I have some sort of crash in my computer, I assume that I'm not the only one. And I go on to Google to say, somebody's must have had the same crash and there's probably a solution. And I'm right 90%, 95% of the time, okay? But there are other questions to which, you know, there's clearly no answer because it's a kind of question that's much deeper than laying out the, here's a crash, what caused it? It's uh, how do you create an empowered team? Mm. Oh, you can go on and you can have all kinds of different opinions, but so much depends on the people and the situation and the reason and all that sort of stuff that there's no way you can look up an answer to those kinds of questions. So in those situations, then, would it be asking a better question? Yeah. And that's really what teams have to be able to do um, is discover the questions that they need to answer. Hmm. What's, a, what's a good way to help people in your experience? What's a good way to help people find the right questions to ask? I think the concept of, you think about creating products, right? Which is the way I like to think about what software does. It creates products that people use. Or if you want to call it a service, we'll call that a product too. Mm-hmm. Um, and as in the pandemic, I'm trying to create drive-by. I'm trying to create the way that people who don't want to go into stores can shop in my place, pay, and pick it up uh, without any kind of content. And the team understands that and tries to figure out how it does it. Um, so if that, if you have a product, the way to figure out what kinds of questions to ask is to understand 
what kind of behavior change good you're trying to cause for customers and then figure out if you're doing it and doing it well by getting feedback. First of all, can people actually pick up? Uh, uh, can they make a telephone call or is it a dead spot in the parking lot where there's no mobile signal? That happened once to me. Um, and, and second of all, um, especially at the beginning, you got an awful lot of emails. How was your experience? How could we do it better? Mm. Um, what, what, what kinds of things did and didn't you like? The things went online so fast that they used feedback for the next you know, two months to figure out how to make it a really way better experience. And I think this concept of thinking about what you do as you do it for a purpose, you, do, you create a product so people can do something useful. And then you make sure that the people not only can do something useful, but they don't have any problems with it or actually you find an even better solution for the kinds of problems that they're trying to solve. So if you truly understand what they're trying to solve, I'm trying to get food in my house without getting close to anybody who might transmit a disease. There are lots of ways to do that, okay? And, and but, but the, that's the fundamental thing I'm trying to do. So if the team understands that, they can come up with more creative ways than just curbside pickup in order to solve my problem and they can then find through feedback how well and satisfied I am with what it is that they're providing, partly by how often I use it, partly by they ask me if I had any problems. Um, and it's that constant feedback from the folks that are that have a problem you're trying to solve and learning from that feedback, whether or not what you're doing is could be done better. Mm -hmm. but accomplish the purpose that you, you know you're heading for better. I think that's the, the mechanism, not just to, to help teams out, but also to get them really engaged. Mm. Can customer feedback always be trusted though? Um, no, but that's part of the game you play. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I mean, you understand that not every single customer you're going to pay attention to. But you also understand that there's lots of statistics you can look at. Um, and uh, you can find out, are people actually using the service? What is repeat usage? Um, do you have 15 customers with the same gripe or just one? Um, you want to understand what you're trying to help them accomplish. Not the method you're trying to help them accomplish, but are they able to get great food in their house, you know, good produce that they always wanted to pick out themselves uh, and be satisfied with that and be happy about it and feel like they've got a great deal or not? Yeah. And can I think of an even better way to do that? So some uh, stores instituted where the shoppers will contact you while they're shopping, mm. maybe even send a picture of something. Say, is this what you had in mind? I think there's a lot of there's something reassuring as well that um, when you when you are buying a product, when you're buying a service, or whatever it might be, when you hear we've changed this based on customer feedback, that's always quite a nice thing to hear that that they're actually that company yeah. is taking seriously. We've we've heard what our customers are saying, and for that reason, we're doing this and we're doing yes. that. So I think that's that's always reassuring to hear as a consumer that. Yes. You know that they are reflecting and they are using that data to, to their advantage. 
but you also want to see the results. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Yeah, you trusting, expect things to be different. Trusting customers can be a big mistake. Possibly, because yeah. it can revert to being nothing more than doing what somebody else tells you to do. Yeah. Um, what they tell you to do may or may not address the issue that they are concerned about. Um, any more than the big boss telling you what to do may or may not address the issue that the big boss is concerned about. Mm. Um, I think you have to not just respond to what they tell you to do, but understand the behavior of your system, the behavior of them, and how they interact, and what is undesirable, what should be, what should be different about it, and get a very deep understanding of the problem before you can successfully design a different approach. Mm. So the mistake of just doing what somebody else tells you to do and saying that you've done your duty when you've done that is really a serious one. Mm. <laughs> it's one we've all made for 40 years. True. Yeah. And it's, and it's easy, isn't it? It's quite tempting to somebody's told you something, what they want or what they think should happen. And the tempting thing is to just, okay, well, let's, let's, uh, that's what you said. Let's, let's go for it rather than really, really think about it or try something else or even better. Yeah. Experiment. And how can a person be proud of simply doing what somebody else told them to do rather than be proud of having really understood an issue and um, implemented a solution that makes that issue dramatically better. Do you think that's something we've lacked in pride? Yeah, exactly. Deming talked about pride in workmanship. Yeah. Being one of the key things that um, it was sort of the responsibility of management to make sure that workers had the ability to have this pride in their work. Hmm. And that's where the, a lot of these craftsmanship movements have, have, have come from, I guess. Yeah, I hear about craftsmanship, but I've always thought of craftsmanship, just the word, okay? And since you speak English, so you'll probably get that, um, even though it's slightly different English. But, but craftsmanship tends to mean doing what I want to do, um, whereas uh, products are doing what people need. Mm. And so I would look for, um, I like the word engineering better than craft. Let's put it that way. Mm. I like to think of software as a software engineering discipline, um, probably because the software I wrote, I wrote as an engineer. Yeah. And um, it's a problem solving discipline as opposed to a craft. Yes, engineers have to be good at something, but they're not talking about what they're good at. They're talking about what kinds of problems what they're good at will solve. I think there's another fine line though, and I'd be interested whether you've seen the same thing as well, that if we're looking at software engineers taking um, taking that kind of pride in their work, there's there's potentially a risk that I've seen manifest in certain circumstances where engineers really do what, what they want to build rather than the customer or, or what other okay. people, the consumer. Well, do you think civil engineers do that? I don't have enough experience of that to be honest. Uh, we build buildings, okay, yeah. and, and bridges and structures. Like that? Uh, do you think electrical engineers do that? I don't know. Do you know any other engineering discipline that's been accused of that? 
I would say that there are some engineers that have been accused of vanity projects. Uh, <laughs> occasionally, yeah. Okay. But generally speaking, something about software engineering, which I am going to go into in a moment, causes us to think that software engineers care more about doing what they want to do rather than solving the problem. And I believe that comes from the fact that we, if we tell really good folks what to do, how to do their job, there's something they have to take pride in. And since they can't take pride in solving customer problems, they take pride in solving technical problems. Mm -hmm. But if you turn a good technical person at a customer problem and they're engaged in that, you don't have to worry about them embellishing the technology because they're focused on the customer. If we don't allow our software engineers to be focused on the customer and solving that customer problem and coming up with creative ways to do that, then yes, then you have to worry about whether they're, where they're going to find something to be proud of. I definitely, definitely agree that, that that element of connection and empathy and Mm. understanding of the customer problem and actually so engineers that I work they, they love helping people by solving their problems I think that mm -hmm. is absolutely there and that divorce that empathy is something that I've seen really really grow over the last 10-15 years that was going to be my question do you think that's changed Mary and Tom over time do you, I mean because we still see that now but I suppose maybe I'm hoping maybe it's a false hope but is that starting to change more towards that kind of problem-solving mindset, do you think, or, or Depends not? Depends on what world you live in. Facebook, Amazon, Google, Netflix, yeah. SpaceX, those together are the biggest companies in the world, and they all have internalized that. Yeah, and all, but when you list those companies, all companies kind of born out of the last 20, 20 years, probably? Yep. So and I would I would suggest that the people who founded them were not solving other people's problems; they were solving their own. Not exactly. Apple, for example, Jobs was not solving other people's problems. He was addressing a deeper need than a articulated problem. Um, his choice of what to build and what good meant. Um, was not entirely just a personal need. He didn't need an iPhone. He didn't need an iPod. But he saw that there was a hole that people didn't even realize existed that he had this concept to fill. Mm. And that's it. that product, like I said, wasn't there. He imagined it. He created something that other people would would want but i think there for me that i didn't when talking about that conversation about software engineers potentially being accused of, of building something from the, for themselves i don't necessarily think that's always a bad thing by the way I no think that's what open source programmers yeah. do all the time yeah absolutely most most for me maybe it's just a survivor bias that i'm seeing this but the, most of the successful entrepreneurs built something because they wanted to solve a problem that they had yes that they understood and, and the passion and the discipline and the rigor and the, and the just sheer force of will to see it through all the different challenges was because it meant something to them. Yes. Uh, and of course, a lot of them will die on the hillside if nobody else wants to buy it later on. But that, that sense of personal attachment, I think, is quite important. Absolutely. Right. Now, the question is, 
Can we do that in banks and insurance companies and in telecoms and in stuff like that? And the answer is some have. Yeah. And some have not. And where you get excited, engaged teams is the companies that realize that um, we need to figure out how to take what it is that we do and make it meaningful for the people that we're expecting to carry it out. Hmm. I remember someone asking me, oh, this is all very well and good, Jeff, self-organizing teams, cross-functional teams, empower I can, I, but my project is a database rewrite. How do you Why? get a team, how do you get a team to, to really get enthused and energized? The question is, why are we rewriting the data? <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, why? Right? It's because it's annoying and it's it's slow and it's painful and it's dying and it, we're on. Yeah, support. but what kind of database is it? I've who, who is using it? What good is it doing? Yeah. Um, those are questions that should be at the fingertips of the people that are rewriting the database. Because one thing you know for sure is that everything in the old system does not want to get to the new system. Because most, you know, the half of it or more is probably obsolete. Mm. And if they could really get their arms around what was important about it and what wasn't, then it could become a quite an engaging project. Mm. If what you end up with is a database, you haven't achieved anything. If what you end up with is a collection of microservices that can evolve smoothly and continuously to solve more and more meaningful problems, then you've achieved something. But it's always the link to the problem being solved that matters, not, well, the database is old. Mm. It's at the end of support. I like to compare software engineers to, um, let's go to my favorite country, which is Chile. It's not my favorite country, but for this case, it is. I'd love to go to Chile. <laughs> and and uh, let's go to Santiago, and they have an earthquake, OK? And there are scattered throughout Santiago because they have earthquakes a bunch of uh, structural engineering firms with uh, varying levels of structural engineers, some junior, some senior, okay? And now what has to happen is that every single building in the city needs to be inspected by structural engineers. And every building owner has to make a contract with a structural engineering firm. And that contract is going to say, come in, check my building, make sure it's safe. If it needs remediation, give me a list of things that need to be done. Period, that's the end of the contract, okay, bang. And then you have a firm whose reputation you trust, who you assume because you trust their reputation has competent engineers and you let them in and you don't tell them when they're done or how much you're gonna spend. You say when the building's safe or when you've told me what I need to do to make it safe, that's what our contract is for. And that's what I'm going to pay you for. And you might have a check after a month or after so many so much money to make sure that you trust what they're doing. But that's it. You make no effort to organize the work, the detailed work of the engineers in that firm. You would be crazy to tell them how to inspect your building, what to put on the remediation report, right? Uh, that's not your area. And we don't treat our software engineers like those kinds of structural engineers on all those little offices in Santiago or anywhere else in the world that has earthquakes. We don't trust them. We have contracts that tell them exactly how to do their job. Um, I tell you, when they go into a building, there will be a senior person, there will be a lead, there will be a team for the building. It'll be the right kind of team for that kind of building. Um, 
and they will that team will get in there and they under the guidance of the more senior folks depending upon the kind of building they will do the inspections they will do the the remediation recommendations they will send a report and then it will go off to the next building and that's how most engineering occurs hmm. um i have a a potential son in no grandson-in-law okay very very good friend of our granddaughter who is a civil engineer in a civil engineering firm in rochester new york oh, and he designs solar collection panel fields and you know whatever structural engineering things might need to be designed that's what his firm does and they have branches all over the u.s and he does not get treated in the sort of tell people how to do things way mm. that we treat our software engineers and he's just out of college he has senior uh civil engineers who guide his work um, but that's it. Design me a solar collection panel. And, and he has some senior engineers that help him do some of the work and he visits the site and he's got his training and he knows how to do that. And he gets a whole job and nobody tells him how to do it, except he gets guidance from the senior people at his office. Is that because that's more of a, a complicated field than the complexity of software engineering? You tell me his job is more complex than software engineer, and I will tell you you're crazy. No, I'm, I'm saying that his... Uh, not even close. I'm, I'm saying software engineering is more complex. So what? So that... I mean, it, you can't tell me it's not complex either, because designing a solar field has... Any field you don't have a deep knowledge of is less complex than your own. <laughs> That's true. By the time you get a deep knowledge of any field, it is always at the same level of complexity. And that level of complexity is the complexity that minds are able to deal with forever. So equivalent for you, do you think? I don't have a deep knowledge of designing solar farms. But he has everything from local regulations to drain off to um, animal control to um, uh, whether or not they're going to do solar following, it's mm. for a, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of complexity in most engineering tests. I was, I'm, I'm hypothesizing why there is a difference in how different engineers are treated. I'm wondering because whether that's... we don't treat software engineers like engineers. Because it started out as automating simple mechanical tasks in big companies, the only ones that could afford computers that were directed by people that had no idea what was going on. And so they devised um, management techniques that were totally inappropriate for managing software. It's basically a management problem. And as you noticed, the companies that were formed since 2000, yeah. mid nineties to 2000, were formed by people who did understand the technology, who understand the constraints, who understood the opportunities, and they never got into that same hole that the older companies did. I think we're seeing the same things now. It makes me think about my smartphone here. And, and you said, Mary, about the financial industry, the banking industry. That's a good example in the UK, certainly, of um, just in recent times where a few small startup banks are beginning to outpace the, the larger 
more um, you know more long-lived traditional banks because they just they're better at tech they're just better at the solution of online banking and the yeah. other, and I'm afraid but a lot of the um, old financial institutions just can't they can't yeah you say long lives but that's gonna be a bet sorry say again you call them long lives but who knows yeah how much well, that's it and they, they can't keep up with these small startup banks that might not have the banking pedigree but they've got the tech the tech part sorted a lot better certainly yes and but historically you know when i was a young child i brought a book with a pencil to the bank and they wrote in pencil in my book or pen or something like that how much money i brought in and all of the records were kept on paper mm. and then the, those records became automated electronically and that became more and more sophisticated but nobody thought of that as engineering no mm. I think the problem is that the software as a programming discipline in IT departments, not in engineering departments, was under the leadership of people who didn't understand it as an engineering discipline and didn't treat it as anything other than a cost center. Mm. And all you need to do in a cost center is make stuff cheaper. You know, we were not in our engineering department a cost center. Our idea, our job was to make control for processes more and more sophisticated so we could make better products. Mary, do you think when you said that you said about, um, so there's those managers, those leaders who have, they've, they understand engineering and, and that, that, that mindset. Do you think then it is a generational thing as that company, let's say that company is luck, lucky enough to stay around long enough. And it's a growth that it's a generational thing where eventually those, People that do understand that that engineering mindset, when they get to the top of the company, when they get to that leadership role, that's when the DNA of the company starts to change. Is it just a time thing? I've seen, seen it, it happen, and I've seen it not happen. It depends upon who gets to the top and why they get to the top and what the company is all about. Mm. Okay, so I work for 3M, a manufacturing company, and um, through some corporate culture history, um they had a great respect for people in on the floor in manufacturing plants being the experts about how they do their job mm. and um so there was a great respect for the 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 frontline worker and giving them the right tools but if you take a different company that has a different culture and they're going to promote salespeople to the ceo that's not going to be the same kind of CEO as somebody that 3M would promote, which would be somebody who basically formed a new business with a new creative idea. Yeah. And if, if what they're focusing on is, you know, I was at a conference, a, a, a workshop a long time ago with a group and their CEO was a marketing guy and he was about to institute a, um, a, a bonus payment for software developers. And they were horrified. Every single person in their engineering, in their technical department was horrified because there would be all the incentive to do teamwork would be gone. And it would be only incentive for individuals. And it's the worst thing you can do to a team is to create individual incentive plans. But the sales guy didn't, the CEO did not understand that. They eventually got me to meet with Tom and I had a lunch with this guy. Yeah. And we tried very hard to explain to him what he was doing to his technical environment 
and I think maybe, I have no clue for sure, maybe we got across, but he brought a salesman tag and he never, it never occurred to him that individual payouts to get stuff done was not the way to get stuff done. I remember you coming into, well, I wasn't there at the time, but I remember you coming into BT and then, um, I'm not, not sure whether you, you, you were aware of, of the impact that you had. I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. But uh, for, for a company that is very, very traditional, um, someone coming in and quite visibly in front of other people calling senior, manager, senior management out on their less than effective decisions and policies. <laughs> That's a very um, nice way of saying it, yeah. <laughs> was, was, was well talked about in the pubs, shall we say. It was shocking. <laughs> But that's what they needed to hear, wasn't it, Jeff? It was, it was very much that kind of, um, yeah, we, we, we might have been banging this, about the same message for, for years, but until someone else says it, someone from outside the company, Mary, Mary comes in and says that, it's, it's all of a sudden uh, heads started to turn. <laughs> Presumably you, you've had a mixture of reactions, I imagine, over the years. <laughs> Good stories to tell. Yes, but but they come they come later on we were at um okado you know the grocery yeah, company yeah, yeah. um maybe the same time we were in dublin or maybe one year earlier i can't remember but we we've i guess it was one year earlier and um uh, they had man i guess it was the same time but it was a couple couple of years ago and they had just um got a great big contract for building a warehouse in us mm -hmm. tight timeline bet your company kind of thing the guy that invited us in had just been replaced the day i was there was his last day on the job they let him stay so i was <laughs> I, I, there, I, coach. I was dealing with uh, and i met with the leadership team that i had no friends on in that group and i thought well what the heck so i said okay guys so you You've just committed, bet your company thing to a major uh, upgrade, and you're not really working too well in your engineering department right now, and you know that, and, and you can't have any delays. So how do you plan to be successful? Because that's a massive challenge. <laughs> and they looked at me, and they you could see that they knew I was right, and they didn't have an answer. So they said, "Well, what do you think we should do?" Hey, that's what I'm there to tell them. So I, I said, "So the when you do software with engineering, the strategy almost always that successful companies take is called sync and stabilize." And what that means, and I, I don't think I spent more than five minutes explaining it to them is that you have actual tests of whatever you have, the hardware and software running now, like every 30 days. If you've got a one-year project, you have to do this every 30 days and, and you schedule the next one and you say one month from now, we're gonna run this experiment. It's gonna be a hardware software combined, synchronized. Everything you've got done so far has to be synced, tested and then stabilized. And you keep doing that every month. About six or eight months later, I got an email from one of the guys that was there saying, you might not remember us, but you know, we heard what you said and we scheduled our first sync and stabilized 30 days after you were there. 
And it was amazing. And so we scheduled the next one and it was even more successful. And we've been doing it ever since. We think we're gonna make our deadline and we will never look back to any other way, any other approach. And in the sync and stabilize hardware cross software across a large, large project, okay, this is not a small one, where everybody gets together and tests out the concepts to date on a very regular basis is a very classic engineering approach to getting big stuff done, okay? That's what SpaceX is doing when it's shooting up booster rockets to test them. That's what um, Boeing does when it tests various components of its airplanes, even if it's a um, several year project. So very large projects are always done that way, where you build out hardware and software, what it is you have now, and you test the heck out of it and, and exceeding, and that paces your whole project. Yeah. And, and it actually, it tells you what to build. You don't make decisions about how it's going to look until you're close to the end because you're learning at every one of your sync and stabilize things. And if you have a deadline, you can't miss. Then you have to adapt at every single sync and stabilize. Um, you have to make adaptations to your plan based on what you've learned. And if you do that, um, you'll look at all the really successful large engineering projects. That's how they do things. And so I, I told them that and they hadn't heard of it but sounded good to them. <laughs> and now this was the software part and they were not part of the engineering part, which really gave me heartburn because the software people and the hardware people were not in the same organization, even close. Yeah. But so they had to get together every single month and they had to prove <coughs> what they could and couldn't do together and solve their problem. And your, your um, that's a question that I wanted to ask you. What, what would you say is the biggest misunderstanding that you've seen and is still there with regards to lean, lean thinking, lean manufacturing, lean engineering, lean software development, whatever it is. Oh, that, that it's about efficiency. Yeah. It's not about efficiency. Lean is about um, customer focus, respect for people, including workers and customers. And it's about flow. And those are the only things. And when you, when people come up with uh, lean means we have fewer people, lean means we get stuff done faster. That's not the game. The game is flow, not stuff faster. The game is customer focus, not earn more money. The game is respect for workers, so don't waste their time. And those three things applied to lots of different environments is what I think of as lean. And, and pretty much that's it. But way too many people are trying to say, how, how can we get fewer employees? How can we get stuff done faster? How can we pay less money? That's not what it's about. Lean has been a spectacular failure. Anytime somebody tries to copy lean practices, do what worked for somebody else who thought were thought of as lean and they copy the practice, it has usually failed because practices are not what you copy. Mm -hmm. What you copy is thinking. How do you think about things? If you think about things using the principles that the successful people use to come up with their solutions to their problems, you can think the same way to come up with your solutions to your problems. And most of the successful lean companies we've seen don't ever say they are doing lean. They're not doing the Toyota way. If they are manufacturing trucks, they're doing the Scania way. Yeah. They're not doing the Toyota way 
if they're doing HP printers, they're doing the HP way. Mm. There are, everybody who's been successful with implementing Lean has figured out how to apply this style of thinking to their own problem in their own current context. That word current is important because context continually changes. So um, the biggest failure in Lean is doing Lean. So the biggest, the biggest failure of Lean is doing Lean? Is, was that the quote? like the biggest failure of agile was doing agile yeah 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 i was thinking exactly the same copy thing the practices i was deliberate yeah. <laughs> if and you then, just copy the practices you're not going to get the benefits and so thank you not just for not just for your time tonight but um so this is part of a series that we're doing interviewing people that we consider to be not just heroes of ours but also in hugely influential um in the world that we that we operate in so kind of raising a collective glass if you like on, on behalf of the agile community to wish you a hearty cheers for great done Thank you. Yes. Yay. yeah thank you for that thank you it's been fun as much fun as we get to have these days. Exactly. <laughs> fun is a relative term, I find, these days. Yes. It's always the hallway conversations that are the best part of any conference. Yeah. Or any class, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. very true. Very true. I'm sure you, you say You say hallway, I say pub. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same group. Definitely. But yeah, it was, um, it was a privilege to have you here and uh, great to have a chat. Thank you very much for your time. Enjoy. Thank yeah, you thanks. very much. Thanks.